This truly is my favorite time of the year. I love this time of year, the lights, the excitement, even in the busyness of what's happening in life to take a moment to be with family and friends and think about the birth of our Savior, to exchange gifts with one another. It's a beautiful time of year. And what has become part of my uh, ritual, if you will, part of our observation of this event, this observance of Christmas, has been our uh, collective time of giving like we did last week. Now I mentioned this last week, seeing the um, all the gifts out there for kids with Mason's Motel and Madison Creek Elementary. That's become a tradition here. It was It's just one of my favorite things to see all those toys kind of laid out there. Um, when you think about over the last few weeks when we've had um, stockings for the next door that some of our ladies have put together and sent to the next door ministry. You think about Operation Christmas Child and facilitating with the boxes we gave plus boxes that came in. Um, all those boxes that will be sent to kids. And then last week we kind of topped off this giving season um, with our day of extravagant giving. And I want to report to you today about that to the best of our knowledge at this moment what we have and let you know first of all it's okay still to give. Um, you can still give, just mark Day of Extravagant Giving on there and it'll go to these places. But um, last week, you gave the largest Day of Extravagant Giving offering we've ever had. $51,072. Yeah, that... I, listen, I know we're not a shouting church. Right? Like, like we, we barely get amen out of our mouths on a good point. That's some shouting stuff right there. Amen? That's good stuff. Amen. Thank you. Look, I, I, I am so excited we're going to announce the second service. Don't, don't go out telling everybody in the second service because I want them to be a little surprised. I was surprised. Pleasantly so. Excited. Never ceases to amaze me what God does when His people get together in unison for the causes of Christ. So exciting. Alright, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. One of the things I love about this time of year is the questions that come up. All kinds of questions around Christmas. When you're a kid, there are all kinds of questions about what's in that box. So my parents came up this week. Uh, my Maddie was in a uh, her first musical theater performance at First Baptist Hendersonville. They came up to watch it. And mom and dad thought that, well, we're coming up this week. We'll go ahead and bring the presents we have and bring them to your house. Now, I guess that's only fair because there's, there's about 40 boxes of my high school stuff still at their house. But they keep telling me they're just going to drop off someday. I don't know, none of y'all have any of that, all right? But they just brought these boxes and they just left them at our house around our tree. And so all week our kids have been, well, now what's in that box? Right? There's mystery behind it. It's wrapped. It's, it's, it's hidden there. What, what's, what's I'm going to get for Christmas? What's it going to be like? What are we doing for Christmas? Because as kids, it's all a little bit of a mystery. What's going to be there on Christmas morning when I wake up? What's going to be the big gift that I get that I get to play with? Some of you remember what it's like to think about those things, wonder about those things, live in that moment. When I was growing up, uh, our big tradition was that we spent Christmas Eve with, with my 
uh, mom's grandparents, so my great parent, great grandparents, and my dad's mom. And so we would um, drive to Gibson Wells, Tennessee. Y'all know where Gibson Wells is? It's right over there by Brazil, Tennessee. I know where you know where Brazil, Tennessee is. And we'd stop at Aunt Dolly's on the way out there, Uncle Pete and Aunt Dolly's. First, uh, only people I knew that had a working uh, place where they smoked hams. So you'd be out there and they, you could smell it when you drove up on their property. And, and they were on the way. They, they weren't in the big city of Gibson Wells or um, Brazil. They were on the way. And so we'd stop there about... Two o'clock, they'd always have a little something for us. Then we'd go on to Mama Bus and Daddy Bills over in Gibson Wells, and we would always have a great time there, eat a little bit, and then we'd drive from Gibson Wells to the big city of Halls, where my dad's family all got together, and we'd all get together and have a big deal. About eight o'clock that night, we'd start driving home. And that was, you know, back then, you didn't have 12 stations playing Christmas music all the time. Right, like, but there would be a station that would start playing Christmas music on Christmas Eve. Or we'd get the tape. Y'all remember tapes, right? Cassette tapes, y'all remember those? We'd put the cassette tape in of Bing Crosby, Perry Como, and Andy Williams all together. We'd put that in and we'd start to drive from Halls to Dyersburg. It was about a 20 minute drive and on the way we were always looking for a flashing red light in the sky. Now, as a parent, I understand that now. It meant we had to get in bed real fast is what it meant. But the anticipation of that night, how it kept building and building and building. How we went from one great-grandparents to a grandparents, and we knew that it was coming the next morning. Now, the thing about Christmas that makes it so cool for kids is all those questions get wrapped up generally on Christmas morning. My dad used to always say, we'd be opening gifts. He'd say, no, don't go too fast, because when you open this, it's all over. My dad was always the optimist, right? No more Christmas for 365 more days till you open this up, right? He was the dad. Dad was also the one that had the huge trash bag out telling everybody, now give me your stuff right now. As you open it, it goes in the bag, right? Anybody got any of the trash bag dads out here? There we go. I see your hands. All right. Now don't be, don't be throwing that in the floor. Let's put it right, come on, right in here. All right. Mom's the one trying to save the wrapping paper for who knows what. Who knows what we're saving it for. Right? Save the bows. Because use those bows next year. Don't throw those away. Those are still good. All right? Dad's just stuffing it in the trash bag. All right? How did I get off on that? I don't know how I got off on that. But as a kid, all your questions got wrapped up on Christmas morning. As adults, the questions around Christmas sometimes change. And sometimes it's not really about Christmas. It's just the wholeness of life that we start to question. There are less questions about what's under the trees and more questions about how you'll pay for what's under the tree. Less questions about, am I going to get what I want? And more questions about, did I get them what they want? Suddenly the focus shifts from, what am I going to get to, how is it going to be for them? Christmas is also the time of year when bigger questions start to get asked sometimes in our lives. Like, why are we here? And is this as good as it gets? And 
It's supposed to feel a certain way. We have this image of what Christmas is supposed to feel like. And sometimes you're sitting there and you're like, this isn't the Norman Rockwell painting. Doesn't feel right. Why do I feel this way? Why is this happening? Is it all even worth it? But Matthew chapter 2 today, we're going to go right to the heart of those questions. It's a story that many of us know, most of us know, all of us know, and it probably strikes us as a quaint little Christmas bedtime story, but it is loaded with profound counterintuitive truth that reveals to us the essence of what Jesus was all about, what the gospel is, what the good news truly is. It answers deep questions like, how can we believe there is a God when the world seems like it's in such a chaotic mess? If Christianity is true, why do all the smart people in the world not agree on it all the time? Or why do college professors ridicule it? Or what about all the people in the world who aren't Christians? How does God feel about them? All those questions have the beginning of their answers in these few verses in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Next verse. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, we're going to leave that up there for a minute because I want to talk just for a minute about these main characters in this story. So these wise men and King Herod. Now we know that these wise men are well known in nativity sets and songs and discussions around Christmas. But for as popular as they are in Christmas understandings and Christmas stories, we know remarkably little about them. In fact, what we think we know about them, we don't really know about them. For instance, you know this, right? We don't know how many there were. Now, the song says they had three, we three kings. We don't even know if they're kings. So in that phrase, we three kings, we only know that one word is true, and that's we. Right? I don't want to ruin your Christmas hymns there. I read one pastor this week that says that we also know that they weren't at the nativity the night of the birth. That they started their journey the night Jesus was born. And so he says he takes his wise men and puts them on the other side of the room of the na- from the nativity. He says if you want to really have a, a, an authentic experience, then about six to seven months later, bring the nativity out and put the wise men there. They finally arrived. Or move them a little bit each week. Because we know they started when the Jesus was born and they arrived several months or even up to two years later. Now the reason they say they're three wise men is why? Because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But it never says there were three. In fact, a school of traveling astrologers like this would likely have included at least a dozen. You think your nativity sets are crowded now? Put twelve wise men in them, right? It was a caravan that most likely included these guys, their wives, servants, kids, donkeys. It says in verse 3 that they troubled the whole city. He was deeply disturbed and the whole city with them. 
Now, a couple of guys or three random guys walking into a town aren't going to get the attention of the city. But a caravan would. So what do we know about these guys? We know that's not necessarily... We don't know how many, we don't know that they were kings. What do we know? Well, we know, first of all, they seem to be astrologers. But not like when you think about a, a, a kooky stargazing club that just sits around and reads horoscopes. They were part of a Persian priestly ruling class who somehow put all of this together. Now, how did they do that? The short answer is God revealed it to them. But let's dig a little deeper. You see, Persia is where many of the children of Israel had been sent into exile. And we know from the book of Daniel, some of the greatest men of God were kept among the wise men. People like Daniel, the guy that went into the lions, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three that got thrown in the fiery furnace. As a part of their learning, they would have shared their writings of Moses and the prophets with the people in Persia, in Babylon, in that area. The writings of Moses and the prophets are full of prophecies about the Messiah. In fact, there's one of these guys that very likely would have known about that you probably haven't thought about. And it's from the story of Balaam. Now, when you hear Balaam, what do you think about? The donkey, right? Because Balaam's donkey is the one that talked, right? There's an enemy king at that time named Balak who's afraid of Israel and wants to have them cursed. So he hires a prophet Balaam to do it. Balaam, who's not very conscientious prophet, agrees to do it because the king paid the right amount of money. And if God doesn't want it to happen, he sends an angel to stand in Balaam's way so he can't do it. The donkey sees the angel and refuses to go. Balaam beats the donkey. Eventually the angel moves so the donkey continues. The angel with the sword reappears, but this time he's standing on the middle road with two walls by it, and the donkey veers out of the way. Balaam scrapes his foot. Balaam curses and beats the donkey again. And then in Numbers 23 it says, Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. He's done. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam. Now that's just one of the craziest verses in all of scripture, isn't it? I mean, we just read that like it's scripture, but that is crazy. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, another crazy verse in scripture, right? Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And this part is great. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, No. God opens Balaam's eyes, sees the angels, realizes the donkey has saved his life. And so instead of cursing Israel, he prophesies blessing over it. And part of that prophecy says, a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That meant a king would come that would rule the whole world out of this tiny nation. And so these men, these wise men have studied prophecy after prophecy, including that. And they're always looking for that king. And when God causes unusual Heavenly activity, they say, that's it. That's what we've been waiting for. 
That's the wise men. There's another major player in the story, and that's Herod. What do we know about Herod? Herod was one of the worst tyrant kings Israel ever had. He was under Roman authority, but he himself had ruling power. First, he was ostentatious. He built big, showy palaces and temples with his names all over them. This was Herod's sanctuary. Praise be to God, it's not. Amen? There would be nameplates on every seat that it was dedicated to Herod. There was a Jewish tradition that said when David was running from Saul, he had climbed up into a palace called Masada and hid out there in a cave. Herod said, if our greatest king hid out in Masada, then I will one-up him by living there in luxury. So he built this immense palace fortress there in Masada just to one-up David. He figured out a way to pack and preserve dates and figs that would last for years. And a group of archaeologists in the 40s was excavating this area and found one of Herod's storerooms still filled with food he had stored 2,000 years ago. Still preserved. In fact, the account I read said that some of the archaeologists actually unwrapped a few of these dates and figs and ate them. Now, I don't know how you are on the sell-by date on your milk carton. Like if you're okay two days past or three days or if you get a can of something. Like I don't know how far you are, but 2,000 years is a little long for me. All right? He was ostentatious. But secondly, he was psychotically paranoid about losing power. He had his wife killed because he thought she was conspiring against him. And for good measure, he had her, brother, her mother and her brother too. A few years later, he had all three of his sons killed for the same reason. The Emperor Augustus said it would be better to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. Probably one of the craziest things, when he was on his deathbed, he ordered dozens of other noblemen be executed at the moment of his death. Because he wanted the land to mourn his passing and he knew that no one was going to do it because he died. But when everyone else died in that room, they would. He only cared about himself. Once he was short on money, he had the 45 wealthiest citizens executed on charges that he made up, then seized their estates so he could be wealthy. Half of everything the common man was made was taken from Herod and another 12.5% for Caesar. Effectively, they had a tax rate of 62.5%. At one point under Herod's reign, the Sanhedrin sent a delegation to appeal to Caesar, saying that Herod had reduced Israel to a land of helpless beggars. Verse 4. So he assembled all... We'll go back one. There you go. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. This is amazing. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. By the way, this is Micah chapter 5, verse 2, if you're interested. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, if you were just reading this for the first time, you would expect the next verse to be, And so all the scribes and religious leaders packed up their stuff and got on over to Bethlehem to see this king that had been born. Is that what happens? They don't do anything. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. He doesn't want to worship him, right? He wants to pretend to worship and then murder. After hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was. The star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. I love the way the NIV says that. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary as mother and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another route. Four things I want us to see out of this passage, and then we're done today. The first thing that we see in this passage, it's a little unexpected when we think about it, and the first question that gets answered for us is that the good news of Jesus' birth is for everyone. Now think about this. We talked last week that the first people to understand that Jesus had come in the book of Luke is the shepherds. This week we find out in the book of Matthew, the first real people to come and worship the king is a group of wise men, astrologers from the east. Now, that takes on more significance when we think about this, that each of the four gospels was written primarily to an intended audience. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written to audiences that they were trying to communicate to. Matthew's intended audience is the Jewish people. And his purpose is to show the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King. But interestingly, in a book written to Jewish people, the first people who come to worship Jesus are pagan wise men. That's no accident. It's the first example of people worshiping Jesus in the book of Matthew, and it is pagan wise men. And then at the end of Matthew's book, at the very end, he is the one that gives us the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So Matthew bookends his gospel with a focus on the nations. He begins the gospel by showing the nations coming to see the Messiah. He ends it by telling us to go and tell them about the Messiah. The core of the gospel message is that Jesus has come for everyone. All nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people. Jesus was not a Jewish savior only. He's not an American savior only. He is the only savior for the entire world. There's no hope or forgiveness of sins and healing from the curse apart from Him. And our task is not complete until people from every nation have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is for everyone. Now here's what I will say to you. If you're in the room today and you're not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, understand this. You cannot get too far from Jesus for Him to abandon you. For those of us that are believers in this place, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we doing all that we can do to let everyone know that the good news is for them? We talk about this all the time, that right now there are somewhere around 6,000 unreached people groups. That number fluctuates. In some days it's a little bit more. Some days you'll see it a little bit less. Some places you look, it's a little more. Unreached people group is just a group of people that have a similar culture and language, and they live together in an area. And of those 6,000, 
and unreached people groups that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language, in their own culture. That is about 1.48 billion people that have no access to the gospel. 3.06 billion people that have very little access to it. Just take one country like Indonesia. There are 76,000 villages in Indonesia and 50,000 of them are without a church. At all. What are we doing with our life to get the good news to all people? There are wise men of every nation seeking truth in whatever they can find. And the stars and their religion and their ritualistic practices in their cults. And we have the message to deliver. Now listen, that doesn't mean we're all called to go overseas. But I would say this, that in American Christianity, there are probably a lot more of us that are called to go overseas than actually go overseas. And one of the things that I'm afraid the American church is going to have to give an account for when we stand before Almighty God is while we were content to stay in a place that has hundreds of churches in almost every part of our country when there are so many that have never heard of Jesus at all. Matthew begins his gospel by saying to the nations, come and see. He ends it by telling us, go and tell. Second thing we see in this passage of scripture is, and I love this word, God commandeers the universe for his purposes. Some of you like it too, because it looks a lot like Commodores, but that's not what it says. Matthew shows us in this story. That God moves the pieces and the people of the universe together for his purpose. Think about even what we talked about or think about with Luke. In the book of Luke, we talked about the fact that Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem. Now, how do they end up in Bethlehem? Because God caused the tax of the entire Roman world. Just so. He could move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem where the prophecy said he would be born. That is inefficient use of people. Right? In general terms. Let's move the entire known world all around for the purpose of two people getting to their hometown. God could have whispered in his ear to Joseph, Hey, you know what? Being really cool right now if you take a trip to Bethlehem. He showed up to Mary and said, Hey, you're going to have a child. He could have said, And by the way, on this date, I need you to pack up your things and go to Bethlehem. But instead, he taxes the entire Roman world to get Mary and Joseph to a hometown. Here Matthew shows you that God wants pagan sorcerers to be one of the first to worship Jesus at his birthday party to make a point so he commandeers the constellations to bring them there. He controls the heavens. He speaks through donkeys. He manipulates the governments. There is not one square inch of this entire universe over which God does not have complete control. That'd been a good place for an amen right there, by the way. Psalm says that he'll make even the unrighteous wrath of man bring praise to him. Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations.
One of my favorite uh, writers of all times is J.R. Tolkien, and I love his Hobbit and Lord of the Rings series. And in the Hobbit, if you read it, by the way, J.R. Tolkien was a um, sincere Christian who had a hand considerable hand in leading his friend and and a guy that he talked with regularly in the pubs of England to Christ, a guy named C.S. Lewis, who you may have heard me quote once or twice in ten years. In The Hobbit, he created all of these natural characters that were literally from nature. Trees and eagles that were part of his writing. And he said one of the reasons he had so many characters in his stories from nature was to show that God commandeers every element of the universe to accomplish his purpose. Sometimes we just need to stop and let God work to show his glory. Usually we think of serving God as actively doing a bunch of things for him. And there is a time for that, but there are... Be still and reflect on the fact that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. He's not dependent on anybody or anything to accomplish what he is going to do. Nothing can stand in his way. And if he needs to rearrange the universe to make it happen, he'll do it. And if you're a believer, he's going to do the same thing for you. The same God who sovereignly arranged all of the stars in the sky, sovereignly arranges every detail of your life. He can work all things together for the good. That doesn't mean he sends calamity in your life, but he sure can take the calamity of your life and make it into something beautiful. That doesn't mean he causes you to sin, but he can take the sin of your life and turn it into something absolutely beautiful. If he can get a star to stand over the place where a baby has been born, he can take care of your financial difficulty. I'm going to get to going here in a minute if I don't be careful third thing we see in this passage the only wisdom worth seeking is God what are these men called in this passage of scripture wise men right now they're called wise men not because they found Jesus they're called wise men before they start the search but what we see in this passage is that the wisdom of the world is no match for the wisdom of God First of all, the wisdom of the world is dated. These wise men were considered wise because they knew how to read the stars. That seems foolish to us today. Astrology goes in and out of date in terms of how chic it is. A hundred years ago, it was defunct. Then about 30 years ago, it came back into fashion. you imagine today if it came out that Donald Trump was reading his horoscope? But we had a president a few years ago that he and his wife did. What seems wise today is ridiculed tomorrow. Freud is in, and then he's out, and then he's in again, and then he's out again. Certain dimensions of critical scholarship, like there is this thing called the Jesus Seminar, which said about only one out of six of the sayings of Jesus were authentic to him, and they were really popular, and then they weren't popular, and then they're popular again a little bit. It goes in and out and in. Scientific theories are in and then out and then ridiculed, and why did we ever think that? And Oh, well, of course it's true now. Every generation thinks, but our intellectuals are different. In a hundred years, they'll look at our intellectuals and be admired for their genius. And it's never been true. Everybody looks back and says, what were they thinking? They were on the wrong side of history. If you want to be on the right side of history, a lot, by the way, and a lot of times you just got to keep switching sides. Now, there are some things that have happened in history that it is obvious that people were on the wrong side. But in 
understanding philosophy and scientific stuff, it goes back and forth. And the Bible teaches you, and history bears out, that whatever the educated intellectual people of one generation believe will be mercilessly ridiculed by the educated intellectual people of the next age. Yet when I pick up my Bible, I'm dealing with ultimate eternal truth. That guy C.S. Lewis once said, all that's not eternal is eternally out of date. So it's not relevant to today, the wisdom. It changes continuously. Secondly, the wisdom of the world is inadequate. How did these guys find Jesus? Not through the star. That got them started. But where do they get the details? Matthew is showing you that worldly wisdom is severely limited. Worldly wisdom can often help you to diagnose the problem, but not fix it. They had to get instruction from the word of God about where to go. We also see that the wisdom of the world is narrow and exclusive. The only people who have access to it are the world's wise, smart intellectuals. If you're not smart, you're out. By contrast, the first people to worship Jesus are the wise men and the shepherds. They are the opposite end of the spectrum. The highly educated and the not at all educated. We find them both kneeling at the foot of the, of the cradle. The gospel is the most inclusive worldview ever put forth. It allows anyone from anywhere to come to Jesus and find salvation. The Jewish Pharisee, the pagan philosopher, king, shepherd, and prostitute sit down together because of the basis of their acceptance is not found in who they are or where they're from, but it is found in what Christ has accomplished for them by grace. By the way, don't miss this. In the eyes of the Jewish people, both of those that were at the cradle worshiping Jesus were the wrong kind of people. The uneducated roughnecks and the pagan philosophers are worshiping a child of a poor unmarried couple. At least they were unmarried when she conceived. Do you realize how crazy it is to begin a book written to Jews in that way? The gospel turns the wisdom of the world upside down. And here's the last thing and then we're done. The answer to our deepest questions is a person. We all have questions about God. Even those of us that are believers have questions about God. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Or the whole creation and science question? Or what about all the religions? And what about the good that they do? There's pretty good evidence. Wherever these wise men came from, whoever they were, they didn't know God, Yahweh, like Mary and Joseph knew God. They hadn't studied the Old Testament completely. They didn't know what Jesus would do with his life. They just had questions. Questions about life, about eternity, about God, about themselves. Kind of like everyone has had questions at one point in their lives or another. And their questions were intense enough, they traveled hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to investigate. Let me ask you this question. What if you got all of your questions answered? I mean, could anyone ever say anything so powerful and thought-provoking that you would say, you know what, you're right on the deepest answers, deepest questions of our lives. The scripture teaches us, 
that the deepest questions of our lives find their answer not in an answer, but in a person. Think about these wise men. When they followed the star, they didn't find an answer. They found a child. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. We know this from a young age. We know that most of us, when we want answers, what we really want is someone. When you're five and you stub your toe, what you really want is a hug from your mom. When you're eight and your best friend snubs you, grandma and her cookies have a way of making it better. It's not just kids, it's adults too. When you've had a season of loss in your life, chances are you're looking for a little more than just an answer. You want someone to walk with you through it. In fact, in the most confusing times, having the right person walk into the room can instantly make you feel so much better. Make you feel everything will be okay. What if the same is true with God? Maybe you think everything will be resolved when you get all your question answers or when your big questions get answered. But what if God is answering those questions every day in his presence? The common presence of the Lord. We want proof, Frederick Buecher says, but proof in the stars is not the kind of assurance we really need. Even finding the star did not give them the answers that they need. What we need is to know not just that God exists amidst the steely brightness of the stars, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-by-day lives who may not write messages in the heavens, but who in one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around in here, knee-deep in muck and the misery of the world, showing us that He is with us. And that is the answer the wise men found that night. The answer in the stars led them to a crib outside and in. And in that crib is the Savior of the world. They were looking for an answer, but instead they found Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel. And maybe what we all need far more than an answer, for sure what we need far more than an answer is God with us. God with us in the heartbreak. God with us in the breakup. God with us in the mess of our family. God with us in the sadness. God with us as we try to make sense out of success and the meaningless we feel. God with us in the strangeness of love. God with us in financial tension. God with us in a challenge. And that's what the wise men found. God with us. They didn't find an idea, a sign, or an answer. They found something better. They found Him. And my hope is that this Christmas season we would look again at Him. And that today we would respond to the Savior who gave His life for us. Personally. You're not alone. You're not walking by yourself. You have a God That is with you. Let's pray together.